0: Welcome to The Social Contract, a new podcast created by author George S. Corey and the artist Cleo. Hi, everyone. We're so glad to have you back for episode three of The Social Contract. I'm actor, writer, producer Tavia Gilbert, and I'm your host for this special double episode. A quick recap about The Social Contract. This monthly podcast is for political junkies who might have forgotten just how fun and often comical politics and Washington's political figures can be. The podcast was created as a companion piece of sorts to George's first book, Presidential Conversations, which we're very excited to announce will be coming out in paperback on April 26th. You can pre-order it now, and we'll put a link in the show notes. You don't need to be familiar with the book to thoroughly enjoy the social contract. But in keeping with the spirit of the book, this podcast features fictional, often satirical send-ups of the hot-button political issues of the day. This episode is part one of a special two-parter called The Last Temptation of Trump. Ah, yes, fans of Martin Scorsese and other cinephiles will immediately recognize the title as a play on Scorsese's 1988 film The Last Temptation of Christ, which stirred a bit of controversy when it was released. But George's reimagining of the passion as a political satire is much funnier and lighter and, as usual, wildly inventive. This episode contains some biblical allusions, in keeping with this time of year, which sees much of the world observing Lent, a time of reverence and often abstinence observed by Christians that begins with Ash Wednesday and lasts for 40 days. President Biden announced that he's giving up his beloved ice cream for Lent, which is admirable of him, not sure I could go 40 days without ice cream, But the Lenten period is meant to acknowledge and emulate Christ's fasting in the desert, prior to commencing his public ministry. And of course, Easter and Passover are just around the corner, which combined are celebrated by almost 85% of all Americans— Whether you attended church or Sunday school growing up, or even if you're familiar with the Bible as a historical or a literary document, still the best-selling book of all time, then you probably know that Christ was tempted three times during his self-imposed desert exile. That concept was the starting point for Scorsese's movie, and it's also the starting point for George's story in this episode of The Social Contract— George wrote part one of The Last Temptation of Trump, 40 Days and 40 Nights, to coincide with President Trump's 2021 CPAC appearance, which rather remarkably happened exactly 40 days after the inauguration of Joe Biden as the 46th President of the United States. George sets this tale on the golf course, not in the desert, where none other than Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell takes on a downright devilish role to tempt Trump with promises of a return to power. It's interesting to note how the tides have and have not changed since this time last year. Trump is very much still Trump, With his recent 2022 CPAC appearance mirroring much of the same messaging as his appearance in 2021. But McConnell, who only last year said he'd absolutely support Trump if he were to again be the Republican nominee, is now actively working to undermine Trump's chances at a political resurrection. Now let's get to the story, featuring the fabulously talented Stephen DeRosa. And we'll get to talk to Stephen afterward. I'm so truly excited to introduce him to you. But first, let's listen.
1: The Last Temptation of Trump. Part One, 40 Days and 40 Nights. Donald J. Trump was feeling downright despondent. It had been 40 days and 40 nights since the so-called presidential inauguration of Joe Biden. In his view, Trump had been unlawfully expunged from the White House and was forced to relocate to his palatial Mar-a-Lago estate in Palm Beach. Sure, people still called him Mr. President around the club. But that hollow greeting was a far cry from his glory days, as the 45th President of the United States. A bright spot in his otherwise humdrum new life was that he could golf to his heart's content. Not that anything had ever stopped him before. His unlikely golfing buddy was none other than Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Sure, Trump and Mitch acted like they hated each other for the cameras. And in fact, they did dislike each other. But neither Trump nor Mitch was exactly popular these days, so they couldn't afford to be too picky when it came to friendships. Trump agreed to a round or two on the toughest course at his Trump National Doral Golf Resort. As usual, the former president topped off his golfing attire with his red Make America Great Again ball cap. He loved wearing his trademark hat because it meant he didn't have to do his hair. Mitch who Trump thought was looking more like a turtle every day, went overboard on the MAGA motif, decked out in head-to-toe Scorsese red, from a Gilligan-style floppy hat and polo shirt emblazoned with a huge 45, to Bermuda shorts and golf shoes, all a fiendish crimson hue. Trump knew that Mitch was sucking up to him, Mitch had been no help when it came to contesting the 2020 presidential election and rendered himself even more useless when it came to standing up for Trump during his post-presidential Senate impeachment trial in the aftermath of the Capitol riot. And now the grim reaper himself, Mitch McConnell, had, quite transparently, come to Mar-a-Lago on bended knee. Say what you will, but Mitch was no dummy. He knew that against all odds, Trump still wielded tremendous power within certain segments of the GOP. As much as Mitch peeved him, Trump had to admire his adeptness at making the most of foreign entanglements, all while waving the American flag. Mitch was shrewd enough to marry Elaine Chow, daughter of a Taiwanese shipping magnate, which made him one of the wealthiest members of Congress and he hadn't earned the nickname Moscow Mitch for nothing. Hole after hole, Trump realized that spending the day with Mitch could feel like another 40 days. So he was grateful that their wives had tagged along. Melania wasn't a big golfer, but she loved showing off her various designer sporty looks. Today, she looked like she had been sewn into a Saint Laurent couture jumpsuit. Her Louboutin stilettos weren't practical, but Melania rarely left the cart. Trump had to admit that even Elaine didn't look half bad, in her Burberry twin set and oversized sunglasses. Still, he'd never forgive her for resigning as United States Transportation Secretary on January 7th, 2021, with less than two weeks to go in her term for what she called the traumatic and entirely avoidable violence at the U.S. Capitol. The unlikely foursome chugged along in Trump's golf cart, a replica of the presidential limo The Beast that had been retrofitted, per Melania's directive, in Gucci leather-clad seats. Trump's Secret Service and McConnell's Capitol Police entourages followed in Trump International golf carts, for which Trump, of course, was charging them by the hour. Mitch
2: turned to Trump and asked him, So, how are you doing, Donald? I mean, really. Don't ask. It still
3: burns me up that Joe Biden, of all people, gets to use my Twitter handle, at POTUS,
1: spewed Trump.
3: It's been more than 40 days and 40 nights since I've been banished from Twitter. Who the hell does this guy, at Jack, think he is? Looks like he's homeless, but they say he's worth even more than I am.
1: How is that possible? Just then, bumpity bump, their golf cart veered off course right into a cavernous sand trap at the 11th hole. Trump stepped out of the golf cart and lost his footing. As he sunk ankles deep into the sand, he started feeling dizzy. A fierce wind bellowed as a cloud of sandy particles enveloped him. When it finally subsided, Trump wiped his eyes and looked around him. The sand trap had become a desert. He looked up, and the sky had reddened. Mitch was perched against this backdrop, still dripping in MAGA red, somehow looking much bigger than he had just a few moments before. He stretched his arms out and spoke
2: dramatically. Donald... If they'll promise to give me an exalted position when you return to your seat of power, I shall compel at Jack to miraculously restore your Twitter privileges as if turning a stone into a loaf of bread. Believe me, I have my ways. Although Trump was tempted,
1: he didn't trust Mitch and was able to resist his offer.
3: Nice try, Mitch, he said. But you know as well as I do that Twitter misses me a hell of a lot more than I miss Twitter. And I really miss it. Who knows? Maybe I'll start my own media platform. Which, of course, would be huge. And I'm thinking a lot bigger than social media anyway. My people can't live on Trump's tweets alone.
1: Thunder pierced the red clouds as Mitch ambled closer to Trump. Mitch's
2: eyes were now red. Donald, you have amassed an army of undyingly loyal followers that will do anything you tell them to. I beseech thee, call for revolution. Now, like Napoleon returning from exile in Elba, you too can reclaim the power that is rightfully yours and be carried to celestial political heights.
1: But once again... Trump was able to resist. I
2: see
3: right through you, Mitch. You know that 2024 is going to be all about Trump. So naturally, you're trying to get back in my good graces. Sorry, you had your chance, and frankly, you blew it.
1: As a sudden jolt of thunder cracked the earth beneath him, Mitch pressed on in an effort to tempt Trump a third time. Mitch had grown bigger yet taking on almost monstrous proportions, and now oozed red bile as he hissed. He moved dangerously close to Trump's face, reminiscent of the terrifying scene in the movie Alien.
2: Donald, if you do this, all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory can be yours. I command thee... To give yourself to us, the establishment Republicans you have forsaken, and become our instrument of conquest.
3: You gotta be kidding me, said Trump. Why would I give myself over to any of you losers? Now get out of here and take your miserable
1: ingrate of a wife with you. And with that, poof, monstrous Mitch... Vanished in a red puff of smoke Sir, are you all right, sir? A man's voice echoed Trump opened his eyes and looked up at one of his Secret Service protectors What happened? A groggy Trump asked You took a spill in the sand trap, sir You were only out for a few seconds Replied the Secret Service agent as he helped Trump up to his feet Are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine, Trump said
3: Just a little spooked, that's all. Where'd they all go? I'm sorry,
1: sir. The people I was with. Sir? There was no one else here. You wanted to hit a few balls by yourself before CPAC, remember? Oh, yeah, right, CPAC. Trump dusted himself off and got his bearings. He looked up, squinting, and swore he could see a faint red cloud in the otherwise perfect sky.
0: I'm kind of in awe at the gifted performer you just heard. He really is amazing. Broadway World called his performance in Presidential Conversations a tour de force, and I can't think of any better term to describe his mastery. And now it's my pleasure to introduce Steven DeRosa. Oh, man, I'm so excited to meet you virtually and to talk with you. Vice versa. You've had a really amazing career from Broadway to television to now audio and audiobooks. So tell me a little bit about what's your story? What's your path? How'd you catch the acting bug?
1: <laughs> oh, it's that it's that thing that you're sort of born with, I think. Those of us who choose to make it our life's work have this drive and this innate sort of I I guess fire sounds so cliche, but you know this um, calling, is that even more cliche? But it is kind of a calling. You feel a longing. You feel this need to be part of it. I was resistant growing up in New York. I saw so many struggling actors and I thought, Mm. oh, I shouldn't do it, even though I loved it. And then I took classes and I was encouraged. And then about halfway through college, I was completely focused Mm. on performing and figuring out a way to turn my political degree into a Politics and theater degree. And then this brilliant woman, Robin yeah. Miles, calls me, who I'd known from drama school, and she says, I think I have this project that I think you'll be perfect for. You have to play 23 presidents. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And so here it is. It's called Presidential Conversations. It's funny and smart, and I think you'll be great. And that's brought me to this.
0: Tell us about this political degree. Because that's a surprise. I, that is not something that I knew about you, so this is the perfect, perfect book for you. Yes.
1: In many ways, when I had really started back when, <laughs> back, back long, long ago, when the dreams were Shiny. still fresh and young <laughs> and so optimistic and you were there, all the possibilities were there for you, I really did dream of doing You know, in the 80s, people like Vaclav Havel and all these people were doing political theater and theater made a difference. You know, and then you get out in the real world and you're just like, is there a job? I'll take it. You know what I mean? Is it pay? Can I get health insurance? You know, most of us don't have the privilege of just turning stuff down. And, you know, I think of someone like Stephen Colbert, who the artistry of the Colbert Rapport that he did on Comedy Central and things like that. uh, Political satire was something that I always dreamed of being able to Mm. do. It's not something that's come up often in my career So if we walk it back a couple of decades, I think there was this interplay between art and politics. And I dreamed of somehow doing something like that because it was pretty apparent to me when I I went to Georgetown undergrad, a great school, the School of Foreign Service, and I thought I would work for the State Department. But I was surrounded by kids, you know, who really were lawyers, Mm -hmm. who really were people who were going to work in the government. Mm -hmm. And I realized very quickly, oh, I'm not you guys (laughs) I'm the like goofy, funny guy. <laughs> Maybe at the Xerox copier at best in the office, but like probably doing that show at that cabaret that you guys are going to go and drink at later on in the evening.
0: After you finish your government contract.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> See, exactly. So there's there it is in a nutshell.
0: I feel like as New York actors, we do really have to do it all. We we need to be on stage. We need to be in front of the camera. We need to be in the recording studio. Do you feel that you have a particular preference in terms of what mediums you love the most? And I wouldn't be surprised if you say Broadway, although if you say audiobooks now forever and ever, that's cool too. Because you're so fabulous. I want to listen to a hundred more.
1: Oh my God, I'm honored. I love it all. I always find it amusing when people are just like, no, I wouldn't do movies. I once had a relative say to me, so you don't want to do movies? And I'm like, of course I want to do movies. They're just not hiring me to yeah. do movies. I would die to do movies. But I do understand that in terms of certain kind of soul nourishment, I do have to say that there's nothing like the theater mm-hmm. at the end of the day. When you are doing something on stage that you love and you feel the audience is breathing with you in a live experience— it is unique and it's there's a kind of a sacredness to it and a kind of human ritual that we need to have that kind of a catharsis where we all laugh together and we all sometimes cry together. And that's pretty freaking rewarding, you know, if you get to do it.
0: I was thinking about this recently that in all of the cost cutting and modernization, will we lose theater? And I don't think we will, but I also think we must not because there is true cultural transformation that can come in the theater that can't come from any other genre in that particular way. It is a galvanizing space, so I love it.
1: I couldn't agree more. I could not agree more. I mean, uh, not that TikTok is not a thing. I still haven't downloaded it, but I know it's a thing.
0: (laughs) It's out there. Tell me what it was like to voice those 20 presidents. So you were invited by the wise and brilliant Robin Miles to be a part of this special project. But then you were shot out of the canon. You played everyone from George Washington to Joe Biden. And in between, what was it like?
1: A little terrifying, to be honest, because I didn't realize that there isn't really rehearsal time when you're recording an audiobook. You just have to show up and do it. I had to make up about half of them in my head. I tried to cast the presidents with movie stars and tried to imagine their Mm. voices or play with them. I I wanted to and didn't want to exaggerate too much. Donald is naturally his own Mm -hmm. exaggerations. But the other presidents were much harder Mm. because I had to try to keep each one of them distinct and... uh, yeah. A lot of YouTube research, again, a lot of, I thought George Washington, I kept thinking like Lord Grantham from Downton Abbey. I thought he'd be a good George Washington. <laughs>
2: Let's <laughs> guess him for yes, now. Yes.
1: Some of the voices, I think, landed better than others, but I think they all gave you enough of the flavor and the contrast mm. to convey the character. And so it was fun. I loved playing um, the drunk. I think it was, who is it? Andrew Johnson, maybe? He was fun, but I really just played him as an play old radio. Southern drunk. I just wanted to just play someone <laughs> who was just like, I want to drink some more gin. I have no idea what he sounded like. There's no recordings <laughs> of him. So I just said, let me just pretend like to be like a old school cartoon drunk. And And it was, so that was a lot of fun.
0: I think that's fabulous. (laughs) It's
1: just just stupid. I mean, I'm
0: sure you were going to video clips for whomever you could mine the materials. And then the things that you didn't have that available, you're looking at it from the point of view of a historian. And I love that it's a combination of political history and craft compilation to make these very distinct characters. They're, yeah, they're just wonderful.
1: She's making me blush.
0: Well done. Well, I love all of the presidents, but I do really love your Trump. And you mentioned Alec Baldwin, who does now one of the seminal Trump impressions. But we also remember Phil Hartman, who was so brilliant, who did an amazing Reagan and an amazing Clinton and a Trump impression also, which was pretty great. And then there are people like Dana Carvey, who did George H.W. Bush, very funny, iconic in television and entertainment history. So I wonder if you have a favorite presidential mimic other than the self-respect and self-love you have for your own brilliant tour de force second to steven de rosa <laughs> who's your favorite uh who's your second favorite to
1: my own ego and loving <laughs> and, and that guy in the morning that i stare at saying oh you again You fabulous <laughs> like, no girl. i um i'm deeply flattered again but i obviously i thought Alec was inspired. I think the new guy on SNL who's doing Donald Trump, who had done it on the, um, the Showtime series, is mm. an astounding mimic. I think, when I think of people like Rich Little, but even Phil Hartman, may he rest in peace, what a brilliant character actor he Absolutely. was. You know, it's something that people, when people are really good at it, they take for granted how excellent and how hard it is to actually mimic someone so brilliantly and being an impressionist. Mm-hmm. Like I mentioned Rich Little, who is someone I I remember growing up with and saying, what incredible artistry that is to be able to mimic that person and then put them in a funny situation. I think Chloe Fineman is currently one of those type who's really inspired in the mimicry thing. My Mm. heroes are these people like Mel Blanc and... People from like the 60s, like June Foray, who did all these voices for like the Warner Brothers cartoons and Rocky and Bullwinkle, they were not mimics. They were just voice actors who could create such distinct characters. I just was astounded by it. If you're putting me in the league of people who can pull off that kind of magic, I am deeply honored and flattered just to be part of that.
0: Your work in this is really incredible and doesn't have a meanness. It's not cynical. It's not hopeless. It's not hard and brittle, like the playfulness and the tenderness behind it. It threads a needle that I think is very special. So I think you do a magnificent job. Oh my God,
1: I'm blushing. That's the best compliment I've gotten so far, because that's what I was going for the whole time. And you, your ears and your intelligence and your heart obviously picked up on it. And that means the world to me. And that's what I also love about George, because, you know, it's so easy just to bash Trump, but he's trying to impart a bigger message about empathy And just, I'm not even going to say American values, I'm just going to say human values, you know what I mean, that we need to invest in politically.
0: I would like to ask you about the Young Readers edition of Presidential Conversations, Presidential Conversations for Kids. So you will be back for another audiobook. And I'm wondering, are you excited? What can you tell us about it? How are you going to thread the needle for kids? Tell us everything.
1: I'm so excited about this (laughs) sequel, if you will. So we are seeing some of the same presidents, but in new and inspired locations where these young kids travel through time and are able to participate in history and learn about history and learn about these people, men, (laughs) and in these significant moments.
0: Let's be honest. These men. Let's be honest.
1: They're (laughs) men. Let's have faith in progress. Yes.
0: Yes. Women out there,
1: yes. not not lose faith. I don't want to give away the secrets. I just want to say it's going to be uh, fun and a wilder ride and a different ride in a way that I think hopefully will make kids of all ages, if you will, kind of excited about the history. And hopefully, I'll, if I do my job, it'll be a fun listen that might amuse a, a family on a car trip, I'm hoping.
0: I'm certain uh, so, of it. So
1: I'm very, very excited about that. I also have to shamelessly plug... I have the great privilege right now of being an understudy on the upcoming Broadway show Mr. Saturday Night, starring Billy Crystal. I can't recommend it more highly when we were talking about theater and the experience of laughing and healing. I just can't recommend this musical more highly. We start previews in April and open at the end of the month of April. and I just hope people run and get their tickets to enjoy this show and enjoy that experience. That's
0: so exciting. So Congratulations. That's my
1: shameless plug. For the day.
0: <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much for being with us. And again, I think your work is really very special. And it is a standout performance and a standout book.
1: Thank you. Very, i very, very grateful.
0: It was such a pleasure to get to speak with Stephen DeRosa, who I sort of fell in love with and my team fell in love with. I hope that you are also falling in love with this very special performer and this very special project. We're reaching the end of our episode, but before I say goodbye for now, I want to share a closing quote as I do each episode. Today's quote comes from our first president, George Washington. It touched my heart, especially since this episode explores religious themes. Prior to President Washington's visit to Newport, Rhode Island in 1790, the leader of Newport's Hebrew congregation, Moses Satius, wrote him a letter expressing his hope that his new administration would accord all its citizens with respect regardless of their religious beliefs. Washington responded with a letter that contains these still resonant words. Happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should conduct themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions. Their effectual support. Words to live by. Ron Chernow, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning biography, Washington, A Life, would agree. He calls this Washington's most beautifully enduring statement on religious tolerance. I hope, like me, you're already looking forward to our next episode, which comes out on April 25th. Remember, we always release on the last Monday of the month. Our next episode will feature part two of The Last Temptation of Trump, called The Last Supper Club. Stephen DeRosa will be joined once again by Robin Miles on this one, and I can't wait. I want to thank our extra special guest, Stephen DeRosa. And of course, creators of The Social Contract, George S. Corey and Cleo. Learn more about George S. Corey at georgescorey.com and about Cleo at theartistcleo.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, it's a safe bet you'll really enjoy George's book, Presidential Conversations, available in hardcover, digital, and audio, and coming in paperback on April 26th. Pre-order it now. We'll give you all those links in the show notes And if you take a look at our episode transcript, you'll be able to see Cleo's futuristic art for The Last Temptation of Trump, and you won't want to miss it. Most of all, I want to thank our listeners. We are so glad to have you with us. Be sure to follow The Social Contract Podcast, available wherever you find your favorite podcasts. We hope this will become one of them. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd love it if you'd rate and review us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at MyTSC Podcast. This has been the Social Contract Podcast, created by George S. Corey and Cleo. Produced and hosted by Tavia Gilbert, senior producer Katie Flood. Music courtesy of Listen Audio, mix and master by Kayla Elrod. This has been a podcast from Listen Audio in association with Talkbox Productions.